start today by talking about something that, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of times we hear these things and it seems a little depressing. Um, and it's what, what we've seen happening in the United States, but also um, pretty much around the world. And this is even before COVID, even before COVID, um, the, the usual measures for looking at hopelessness in a society. You know, people usually look at things like, like suicides. And the rate of suicide nearly doubled prior to, uh, prior to COVID. Over, it's the second leading cause of death. The second leading cause of death among children 10 through 14 and adults 25 through 34. From ages 10 to 64, it's in the top 10 leading causes of death. And even though the percentage is still relatively low, it's been rising dramatically. Another indicator when people think of like a loss of hope is, is when they think about depression, and especially like major depression that's, that gets diagnosed. And again, three years prior to COVID in the United States, 33% increase in the, in the number of people being diagnosed with being depressed. And not surprisingly, fastest among teenagers and young adults. There's, um, it, when COVID came, it, it actually started growing even more. And as kind of, no pun intended, depressing as those, those numbers sound, I think there's another area that we don't talk about enough. You know, those things are terrible, and they're not something that's going to happen, you know, many years from now. You look at the children who just left. They're in an age group that if they're going to be in the 10 through 14 age group, if they're not already there in just a few years. How do children go from being these kind of happy children that don't seem to, you know, have a care in the world to be depressed or contemplate suicide? But I think there's, there's other signs of hopelessness in our society that we don't often talk about. They, they kind of stay hidden in a way. Maybe not really hidden's a great word, Maybe they just have a mask on them. Maybe they have one of those big smiley faces on them. And that's the hopelessness that we, that we find in different areas where you, you find people that have just kind of given up. They just kind of, they, they, they still, you know, they still function, they still go to work, they still do everything, but they've kind of given up. They, there's, they're not really living for anything except to live. Um, they don't have they don't have goals, they don't have dreams, they don't have a sense that there's a purpose to existence other than simply to, to live and to die. And you can choose how much you care on any given moment, any given day. 
I think that's a hidden, a masked hopelessness that a lot of us might, you know, recognize in our own lives, but maybe if not in our own lives, maybe in the lives of people around us. And the reason it's kind of masked or hidden is, is because people don't talk about it. Oh, if you get into a good conversation with somebody sometimes and you ask them things um, and, and you know, try to get them to be really honest with you and transparent about why they do what they do, they, they, might be, they might tell you at that point. But it's hard because they could be your coworkers. They could be your classmates. They, and they, they look and they function otherwise normally. They're just giving up. One of the ways this is sometimes talked about is they, they live just for the moment. They live for what's right in front of them right now, today. They're not really thinking about the deeper things of life because why? They're all pointless anyways. Another way that this gets masked is, you know, it's, I've talked about this book before and I'm not going to talk about the book except to give you the title of uh, Neil Postman's book, Amusing Ourselves to Death. That a lot of hopelessness is masked in just entertaining ourselves. We live in the entertainment age. You can go 24 hours a day. People are talking about you know, creating this kind of alternative kind of universe where you can put on these virtual reality things and you can, you can live in there as long as you could live. You, you, can, you can just entertain yourselves with, with music and TV and movies and all these other things, video games. Just keep me entertained. Keep me happy until I die, and then I'm going to die. But that's masking a hopelessness that doesn't get revealed until something interrupts the flow of the entertainment. Entertainment becomes like this drug and as soon as it's interrupted, and I don't have it anymore, then I have to face the stark reality that I believe that life has no purpose and has no meaning other than to live and to die. And so this, this, this mass, this hidden hopelessness, is often even hidden from the person. It's not going to be revealed until something in their life comes along that's crushing or that forces them to not spend every day just thinking about their personal happiness. It's one of the struggles we've had with our, you know, with how we've raised children. And I'm not saying you did this. I'm saying in general, past 40, 50, 60 years, maybe longer. I haven't been around long enough. Some of you who've been longer can tell me. But we've raised kids, and our number one goal with raising kids even among Christians, was to make them happy. We addict them to happiness. We tell them the purpose of life is to be happy and happy, happy. They, we go, we, we got to keep them happy so they'll actually learn. Learning is entertaining, and if it's not entertaining, kids can now rightly refuse to learn, and teachers can be criticized because they didn't entertain the kids and, and help them learn. And by the way, I'm not talking about that. I'm not advocating for, you know, boring teachers. What I'm saying is we, we sell kids 
the drug of happiness from when they're very, very young and they can't break the habit when they get older. Even Christian parents, Christian parents who raise their kids in church, in the word of God, still are obsessed with the happiness of their kids rather than the holiness of their kids. In fact, a lot of them don't even think about the holiness of their kids. They think about the happiness. They think about, you know, are they going to get a good job? Are they eventually going to move out of my house? Are they going to give us grandkids? They think about all those things. They pray about all those things. They invest resources in all those things. They will work two, three, four jobs so their kids can have those things, but they won't lift a finger about their holiness. And it's no wonder we live in a world, we live in a culture where hopelessness, it's everywhere. What I hope, what I hope happened over the past three weeks or so, and we've been going through this Easter series, what I hope happened is that we were reconnected with the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That he is the only hope. And what I hope is that if you believe that and you don't understand it, that you will dedicate yourself to understanding it more so you can bring that hope to the world close to you and the world far away. We're going to look at this passage of scripture tonight and I mean this morning and 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 it's about the night of the resurrection. And we're going to look at what happens to Jesus' followers because I believe John is telling us this story because he's saying, this is what should have happened to you when you came to faith in Jesus Christ. So this is happening the night of the resurrection. Remember last week when John's account, you know, Mary Magdalene had gone, saw the tomb was empty, ran and told Peter and John. Peter and John came. They saw it. They didn't understand it. And then we left with this kind of cliffhanger. Mary Magdalene runs back, tells the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And then we get nothing until verse 19. It says, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, 
unless I see in his hands and the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So make sure we understand the scene. Make sure we understand this context. It's later that day. They have heard that Mary has seen the Lord. We're not told here whether they think she's crazy, whether they think she just overcome with grief and hallucinating, or whether they really believe her. My sense is that they actually believe her. But, as has been the theme in the Gospel of John, they still don't understand who Jesus is. Sometimes we talk about how slow the disciples were to understand Jesus. I'm not saying we'd be any better, but thankfully we're not included in the story, so we get to make fun of them. Because even after they believe he's resurrected, they still don't understand who he is. They're still afraid of the Jewish leaders. They still don't know what Jesus' kingdom is all about. So they're gathered there. And then Jesus appears. John makes sure that you understand the doors were locked. And they were locked not because they're kind of trying to keep Jesus out, it's because they're trying to keep the Jewish leaders out. But then Jesus uses that as an opportunity to do what's a miracle. He shows up. Shows up and he shows them the wounds. And it says the disciples were glad, they're rejoicing. And then he does something kind of interesting in verse 22. He, he breathes on them. And John is doing something that John has been doing um, and he's, he first introduced back in the, in the first chapter. He's connecting the story of Jesus to Genesis. If you remember, the Gospel of John starts with the words, in the beginning. And here, we see Jesus doing something that God did. God breathed, okay? God breathed life into humanity. Jesus is breathing on the, on the disciples and saying, receive the Holy Spirit. In fact, that word that we find in the, the Greek translation of the, of the Old Testament is the same word here. When it says, God breathed in, 
This could have easily been translated, he breathed in them, but you know, I think the translators were like, oh, no, no, not sure what to do with that, so they just left it as on. And then we see the story of, of Thomas and his disciples. And we see, I mean, Thomas not, and his disciples, Thomas was one of the disciples who wasn't there. And then we see him make this great declaration. A lot of scholars believe the original ending of the Gospel of John is verse 31. And that the next chapter was added by John a little bit later. But he intended this to be the ending. And the last thing that's said in the story by someone other than Jesus is, my Lord and my God. Everything John has been doing up to this point is leading to this climactic statement, my Lord and my God. Thomas is the first one who recognizes more fully who Jesus is. Thomas is often, and he's often like, um, you know, kind of nicely ridiculed as doubting Thomas. Don't be a doubting Thomas. Yeah, he was a doubting Thomas. But he also was the first one to say, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus actually tells us, and John is helping us understand who this is really for. Because Jesus says, blessed are those who have seen, who have not seen, and yet have believed. So when we look back at this, you know, uh, there's, there's several things we see what happens when we believe, and this is kind of the journey that, that the disciples who believe in Jesus in some sense, they believe he's a great teacher, a great man, they believe now like he's resurrected, but they don't fully understand who he is, and that's okay. I'm pretty sure most of you are like me, that when you first became a Christian, if you are a Christian, you didn't fully understand who Jesus was either, either. that that came as you learned and you grew. But what we find here is Jesus saying to them, peace be with you. Now, the first time he says it, he could have just been saying hello. That's a very common way that, that Jewish people would greet one another. But when he says it a second time, when he says hello a second time, I don't know if you've had anybody do that to you, but I'm pretty sure if you did, you would think it's weird. If someone came to your house and said, hello, how are you doing? And then about two minutes later said, hello, how are you doing? You, I'm pretty sure you would think it's weird. Um, and it seems to be that what Jesus is actually doing is he's actually connecting with something he had taught them before. What he had taught them before earlier in John is he had taught them before, like, you are going to have, I'm going to give you my peace. This world is going to be troubling. I'm going to give you peace in this world. The Holy Spirit is going to help you have peace. If that bird lands on my shoulder, it could be 
and you hear a voice from heaven, you know, it could be a reenactment, but Cam, can you catch that for me? No? Okay. Well, ignore the bird for a while if you can. Um, sorry I pointed it out to you. Um, bird is making it harder to ignore. All right. Well, anyways, we're going to continue with bird flying. So what happens, what Jesus is doing, I think, is he's connecting with the giving of peace that he said would happen. I'm going to give my peace. And so one of the things that we know that when we have true faith in Jesus Christ, we have peace that comes from God. In fact, it is peace with God. Paul is going to write a couple of decades later in Romans chapter 5. He's going to write this. He says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That it's not just peace like this sense of serenity. Some people say that when they, become, when they became Christians at that moment, they felt peace that they had never felt before. And a lot of that comes because, because you, whether you knew it or not, you, you were carrying around you know, the, the guilt of sin. You were carrying around the, the, the sense of, of hopelessness and despair. And then suddenly you understood who Jesus was to the point that you, you would give your life to him, you would, you would confess your sins to him, and all of those burdens and that moment are gone, and, and you feel peace that you never felt before. You realize you don't have to carry around that guilt anymore because, because it was nailed to the cross. You don't have to bear that sin. And there's peace. You don't have to think like, I gotta do all this myself, I gotta, I gotta make everything happen. No, there's peace. And it's not just a feeling of peace though. What Paul is telling us is, that feeling of peace is because peace at another level, which maybe you're not gonna fully get right now, has happened. You have peace with God. You are no longer an object of God's wrath and judgment. And you might think like, whoa, wait, 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 angry God, I don't, I don't like that. Well, sorry, it's in scripture. But also, in the same letter that Paul was writing, when he talked about wrath from God, when he said God expresses his wrath to those of us who rebel and sin against him, the main way it's expressed is God just let us go. He turns us over to our sin. And now, with peace, he doesn't turn us over to our sin. He rescues us from our sin. And he leads us away from it. When we believe 
we have peace with God, a peace we certainly can experience, but a peace that we should have confidence that we have that Jesus Christ accomplished. The second thing we see here in, in verse 22. In verse 22, again, it, it's, if you want to know more about these things, listen to our Bible studies online. Um, they're all recorded. Or join us on Wednesdays. More and more people are joining us in person, so that's great. But you can join us in person or online. So I can't unpack all the different you know, questions about what does this mean? What's going on here? I just want to talk about what the, the, the point is I think that John is making. And the point is this, that when we believe, we don't just have peace, but we receive the Holy Spirit. We receive the Holy Spirit. And, the, and this is, again, this connects to what Jesus had said earlier about Look, I'm going to leave, but I'm sending the Spirit. The Spirit is coming. It's the Spirit of God. The Spirit will teach you. The Spirit will lead you. The Spirit will comfort you. The Spirit's going to empower you. The Spirit's going to give you gifts so that you might serve and minister more effectively. All these things. But one of the things that we also understand about the this, this Spirit is that the Spirit is, is connected. The Spirit is connected to God's love. One of the questions we, can, we, we have, you know, that I've had when, when I was younger, and, I, and I'm glad I came to some answer to it, but it was like, how do I know I have the Holy Spirit? How do I know? Do I have to speak in tongues? Do I have to, you know, have some prophetic vision or something like that? How do I know that I have the Holy Spirit? And what the Bible consistently says, and if you go back to the same letter in Romans 5, uh, what Paul writes is that the Holy Spirit pours out God's love on us. And I think what happens is the, the main evidence of the Holy Spirit in our lives is one, have we received God's love? And two, is that love empowering us to love those we could not love before? You want to know if you have the Holy Spirit? You want to know if, you, if your belief was more than just I understand and I accept the premises or the story, but I, I believe and I give my life to Christ, and Christ says, receive the Holy Spirit. You want to know? Do you love people that you could not have loved before? As Jesus says, can you love your enemies? Can you love those who, who will despitefully use you? Will you can you love people who, who mock you and make fun of you? That's the evidence. And I think, you know, God says, like, you know, I'm going to make it easy. 
I'm gonna make level one of Holy Spirit video game easy. Okay, level one, that's always the easiest level. Level one, I'm going to put all of the people who are Christians together in the church. And there's gonna be some who are a little more advanced than others, but surely they can love each other there. Surely I can put 30, 40, 50, 100, a couple hundred people together, and surely they can love each other there. No problem, level one. After 2,000 years, the church as a whole is still on level one. We can't even go to level two. Some people like to go to level two. You know why a lot of times people like to go to level two? Because they don't want to deal with level one. I would rather love the crazy person across the street than the crazy person sitting next to me in the pew. I would rather, you know, go serve and help and minister and bless the person I only have to see once a month than the person I have to see every week, if not a couple times a week. I've said it before, but I can't say it enough. We are the evidence. We, the church, we, Wailai Baptist Church, we, every other church that's truly following God's word, we're it. Is God's love here connecting us to one another? Drawing us towards one another? Those of you who, who, are, who are still watching online, you can ask yourself this question. And, and you, you have good reasons for being online. But you can ask yourself this question. Are you longing for the day that you can be back in the same place with your brothers and sisters in Christ? Or are you now kind of happy you don't have to deal with them, you can just connect online? Those of us here in this room, especially those of you who've been part of this church for a long time, my wife used to say this not about people in the church. We used to say it about people in society in general. During the height of COVID, we would, Cheryl and I would go down to the park, go running, We'd go through Waikiki, all these places. We're like, you know, we like this. Nobody's out. <laughs> There's no traffic. There's nobody annoying us on the sidewalks. And I'm trying to run down Waikiki, Kalakaua, and I'm not having to weave, you know, tourists who are totally clueless and, you know, whopping people with their surfboards. None of that's going on. And we're like, this is kind of nice. Could we extend this COVID thing a little longer? But I ask you about this place, this church, those of you who have been coming, are you kind of like, kind of nice, I kind of, some of those people, I think, I hope God tells them they should stay home. <laughs> now the evidence is that we love each other. We don't just love each other a little. 
We love each other relentlessly because that's how God loves us. God loved us when we were running away from him and then sometimes turning around to attack him. And he still loves us. We don't just love each other because, because somebody helps me and I help them or you scratch my back and I, you know, none of that. That's not why. It's because it's who we are. And we relentlessly love one another. We, we think not about ourselves. We, we know that God has given us gifts and abilities so that we might help each other, not simply so that we might be blessed on our own. Right after that, he says in verse 23, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Again, on Wednesday nights, we unpack this a little bit more, and I'm not going to go into it here, but, but, but the, the connection here that John is making is actually to the passage that Pastor John read earlier. When he says, if you forgive the sins of any, he's not saying, um, disciples, you get to decide who's forgiven or not. That's not what he's saying. A lot of people have taken that to believe that. It's not what he's saying. Because if forgiveness matters, it doesn't matter whether I forgive you in the bigger scheme of the things. It matters whether God forgives you. And so if I don't forgive you and God forgives you, hey, that's great. If I do forgive you and God doesn't forgive you, that's not good. Oh, we might get along better. But we've missed the big picture when he says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them, he's saying, you're going to be out there in the forefront. You're going to be the one who's bringing my message, my gospel to the world. And when that happens, people are either going to repent and seek forgiveness, and you get to be there. You get to be there. You get to be the one who tells them, you're forgiven. Not because I forgive you because God forgave you. This is about our main mission because one of the things we need to understand is that when we believe, we are given a mission. We are given a purpose. There are good Christians I know who struggle with, with you know, things like depression. And, and I'm not saying that this explains it away. It doesn't. It's not an easy answer to say, hey, you should know you have a mission, so hey, depression goes away. No. But I am saying this. I am saying that whether you, are, you have depression, whether you struggle with any number of other things, if you are a believer in Christ, you have a mission. You have a purpose that's given to you by God. And that purpose might involve you having depression. I can't explain it. I don't know why. 
I just know that when I look back over my life and when I look back and, and read about Christians from the past and even Christians today, God uses Christians in every situation. People who are uber healthy and people who can, can barely get through a day physically. People who, who struggle with, with all kinds of problems. I've seen God use them. What we have to understand as Christians is if God gives us a mission, he also gives us the power and the ability to accomplish that mission. It's not about my situation. It's not about what I think about myself. It's what I think about my God and what my God can do through me. That's the key. And we have the big mission, the great commission, to make disciples throughout the world. And I think that's really connected to what John is saying here. And if God doesn't give you a specific mission, if he doesn't say, I want you to start this ministry, or I want you to go do this, or travel to this place, or become this you know, vocation or something, if he doesn't give you a specific mission, you know what? I'm pretty sure just doing the Great Commission will take up most of your life. You don't need a special calling. Just doing that in, among your family and the people around you, just partnering with a church that has a Great Commission vision, it's going to keep you busy. This, when we talk about here at the church, we use language like advancing God's kingdom. We use language like being salt and light, being the hands and feet of Christ. It's all connected to this mission because we do those things to help people who are in need, not only to help people who are in need. We are helping people who are in need. Make no mistake. You know, it doesn't do any good to, to go to Next Step Homeless Shelter and say, we didn't bring any food today, but we're going to feed you with spiritual food. So nosh on this. No, people are hungry. We bring them food. And we don't make it a condition. We don't say like, hey, we're only going to feed you if you listen to our message. No, we don't do that either. We meet needs. But we do so because it's part of our mission to make disciples throughout the world. We do it because it helps us understand and learn and grow. It helps us see that my salvation is not simply personal. My salvation is missional. It's not just about my happiness and my eternity and my joy and my peace. I am on a mission. And Jesus is telling them that right there. Receive the Spirit, and that's awesome, but you're on a mission. And finally, what we find here is in the words of Thomas, my Lord and my God. When we believe, when we believe, 
we know who Jesus really is. Now, I'm not going to say we know who Jesus fully is. I'm not going to say we, we, we got it all down at that moment of, of belief or faith. But we are certainly set on a path of knowing who Jesus really is. We are certainly set on a path of knowing and being able to say, as Thomas says, when, when we look at Jesus, we can say, my Lord and my God. Whether we see Jesus as, as the baby in Bethlehem, whether we see Jesus as the boy in the temple, whether we see Jesus being baptized by John the Baptist, or healing people, or preaching and, and doing his miracles, or we see Jesus hanging on a cross, Every time we see Jesus, as we understand, when we really believe, we will say, my Lord and my God. He doesn't become my Lord and my God just because he was resurrected from the dead. As John makes clear, he was God from before the beginning of the world, for all eternity. And one thing that we know about Jesus, one thing that will become a growing realization, and it's something I didn't understand, and something that used to make me a little bit uncomfortable because I didn't know how to kind of remedy this in my head, when, when Jesus says in John 14, I am the way, the truth, the life, no man comes to the Father but by me, that it's not, Jesus wasn't saying this is the best of many ways. He's not saying, this is a really good way. This is an effective way. He says, it is the only way. When we really understand who Jesus is, when we really understand more about what the gospel is and what the kingdom is, we will know that only God, only God can save this world. The only hope we have is in Jesus. It's not Jesus claiming to be superior. It's not, he's not even comparing himself to others. He's saying it's the only way available. No other way. And when we, when we really understand who Jesus is, we don't say this with Jesus is the only way, Christianity is the only true faith. We don't say that bragging. We don't say that to say we're better than everybody else. Unfortunately, that's how it's often said. We say that because we believe it is the only hope and we want you to know that. We want you, the hopeless, the hurting, to know there is a way. The world is lying to you. Your life is lying to you in so many ways. What other people have told you is lies. There is hope. And the hope is found in Jesus Christ. The only hope. I don't know sometimes what to, what to say or what to do when we, when we see evidence all around us of, of the hopelessness that's in our world, sometimes we have to get kind of smacked in the face when, when we hear about often some young person who, who commits suicide. 
Or we hear about another person, another person just struggling, just kind of giving up, just deciding, I'm just going to be one of the many who just live and die. When we have the hope, we, we, I hope when I say we, I'm including all of us, we know the joy. We know the love. We know the purpose. We know the peace that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. When I say we need to get serious, what I mean is not serious, face. I mean we need to commit ourselves to knowing who God is, to knowing what the gospel is, and living it out first and foremost here, here in this church with each other. So that we can with confidence tell people, look, I know a savior, I know a hope, and I know people, imperfect as they are, weird and strange as they are, but I know a people where you can see this and we can bring hope to a world that desperately needs it. When we believe, God does much for us. And when we believe, God wants to do much through us. 